If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it is kind of very difficult, I think, to have an intelligent conversation about democracy or liberty or the rights of the citizen without seeing sooner or later that we're actually involved in a conversation with the ancient conversations about that. That was Mary Beard on how the classical world still shapes us today. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. All of this week we're running special programmes of the podcast to celebrate the fact that we've just released our 500th episode. In each programme, we're interviewing one of our favourite guests from the past 11 years. And today we're going to be hearing from one of Britain's best-known and most revered classicists, Mary Beard, who earlier this year was made a dame in the Queen's Birthday Honours. As well as serving as Professor of Classics at the University of Cambridge, Mary is a hugely popular author and broadcaster, with several BBC series and documentaries under her belt, including being one of the three presenters of the major BBC Two series Civilizations earlier this year. She's also a lively online presence, well known for her blog and social media activity. Our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans, paid a visit to Mary in her Cambridge home, 
for a wide-ranging discussion that explored her career, her passion for classics, and some of her recent TV and book projects. So we're chatting post-civilizations, uh, the 2018 series presented by yourself and Simon Charmer and David Odisoga. And um, you talked ahead of the series release about one of your main aims being to shift the focus away from the artist a little to the people who perceived the art and looking at it through perhaps a different lens. Um, and I wondered if you'd found any kind of discussions around that that had been sparked by the show and and what have you made of the response to the series? Um I thought it was very interesting because some of the the best discussions, and people might think this was unusual, um, were actually on social media. And uh, the the sort of response and interested and engaged and intelligent response that I got off to my programme, certainly on Twitter, was really encouraging. And it's actually, I think, was a cut above quite a lot of what came in the sort of standard press. And that was partly, I think, because the standard press had got so hooked on saying, was this better than Kenneth Clark's version? You know, now most people haven't watched Kenneth Clark's version. Um, and so although it was a kind of journalistic obsession, it, it didn't really mean very much to, to most viewers. I mean, I, I must have been one of the youngest people who'd ever uh, really watched the, the first series, you know, from uh, when it was originally broadcast. I'm 63. So, um, and that, I think, rather stifled some of the the kind of discussions that we could have had because it you know it became a standoff in their view between you know Clark in his tweets and telling us about the greatness of civilization and those you know slightly conservative commentators who wanted to say you know does Mary Beard really think that a Mexican head prehistoric is as good as the Apollo Belvedere? <laughs> I never said anything of the sort. Um, but I thought it was a sort of way they had of actually not looking at the the big issues we were trying to raise. Um, whereas people on Twitter were. Um, you know, and it wasn't that uh, I was keen that everybody should agree with us or me. I mean, you don't make a series called Civilizations and hope everybody will say, well, right, they got it straight then, didn't they? They, You know, now we understand what Civilizations is about. Um, of course we wanted disagreement. And um, it came in places where you usually think you don't get the, you know, well, not always get the highest mm-hmm. quality of response, you know, like Twitter. Um, but it was very good. And... Uh, it was also very good when we went around. We did a bit of roadshow kind of going around the country. Um, and we had really, really interesting responses from the public. So in the end, um, I thought that you know, this kind of snarky stuff that these guys said, and they were mostly, not only, mostly mm-hmm. guys, um, you know, in the end didn't very matter very much. And I thought it was terribly misplaced in a way because nobody was saying that Clark hadn't made a great set of programmes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you can't do that any longer. You can't have really no women in it. You can't have it just being Western Europe, brackets, minus Spain, where he never went. 
Um, and it was a great programme of its time, but we were doing something different. And, you know, let's discuss the issues instead of this kind of silly sort of competition mm -hmm. still. And I think the, the scope uh, beyond Kenneth Clark's original was was obvious to, to everyone. And I, I know that before the show and um, since you've talked about inserting women back into that narrative. So could you perhaps give give a view of some of those women that you felt needed to be back in? Well, I think that in some ways it was um, a, a particular challenge I had doing the, not all, not entirely the ancient world, but very largely the ancient world, um, because we often don't know the gender of the artists anyway, and we have to be a bit realistic about how many of them were women. But... Uh, what I was very pleased to do, and this is where the, the perspective of the viewer came in, was that you know even if we can't resurrect you know forgotten geniuses of sculpture who were female, we can look at these works of art, these ancient works of art, partly through the eyes of female viewers, both ancient and modern ones. And so it was um, you know unforgettable for me to go to these great ancient Egyptian statues standing in the desert outside Luxor and to be allowed to climb up on them and to find the poetry sort of scrawled on them almost like graffiti, the poetry of a Roman woman who'd come to see them decades, hundreds of years after they'd first been erected and recording her response to these statues, because I think not only is it, um, uh, you know, it's great fun to discover, you know, somebody was there just like you are in, you know, in the second century AD saying what they think about these objects, but it's also good to remind people that um, those, that kind of evidence for how people looked at things um, does still exist. You know, when people say, oh, well, that's very interesting, but we don't know anything about that, you just have to know where to look. And so I felt quite excited in, as it were, um, opening up those issues of female viewership, you know, for better or worse. And in the the extra episode of Civilizations that we did, the, sort of, the one that was outside the series called Civilizations on Your Doorstep, we were able to take that right through to you know, the suffragette Mary Richardson um, going and slashing the Rokubi Venus. And, uh, and that was a different kind of eye-opener for me because... I'd sort of been brought up, you know, my, my sort of fairly traditional feminist way to think that Mary Richardson had slashed that nude woman because she was objecting to the nudity. She was objecting to women becoming objects of the male gaze. Um, and I think that just before she died, somebody did almost manage to entice that view out of her. But at the time... What was she was objecting to was something quite different, and it was about the value of art and the value of real women. And she was really objecting to the idea that, on the one hand, Mrs Pankhurst was in prison and being force-fed, and yet people had paid £40,000 to buy the Rokeby Venus. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I thought, gosh, that's... Uh, if you really go back to what women 
say about how they're reacting to works of art, whether it's in hostility or admiration. You find different stories from that, those that you might imagine and rather more complicated ones. Uh, that question of how we interact with these various artefacts and works of art um, is such an interesting one. And in your role as a presenter of Front Row late recently, uh, you were a gallery assistant at the, the British Museum. Um, what did that tell you about how people in the 21st century are interacting with these objects and these mm. artefacts? That was you know, a lifetime's ambition fulfilled for me. I'd always wanted to see a museum gallery from the point of view uh, of the people who were there, not just curating, guarding it, actually, basically, as always seemed to be, attending it. Um, um, and because I thought it would give you such a different view on the museum. And indeed, it really did. I mean, it was, in a way, a bit of a... It was a nice spoof to do it. Um, but it was a kind of spoof with a point because it is very hard... If you want to go and, if you're like me and interested in museum behaviour and you want to go and watch it, it's hard just to go to a museum and just sit and watch people because they think they're being spied on or stalked or something. Whereas once you've got the uniform on, you can do it. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, that for a start, I was a bit shocked that nobody looked at the labels. <laughs> Uh, they looked at some of the information panels, but I know how much immense effort goes in from museum staff to writing those labels. They struggle over every word. And I think in a, in a day in one of the galleries in the British Museum, I saw hardly more than a couple of people who actually looked at a label. Now, they had other information available to them. They were using um, gallery guides in, in paper form and a lot of people um, were using things on their phone, I think. Um, but I thought, all oh, right, that's quite interesting because I put a great deal of store about the label, um, but these people are not. And I suppose perhaps often I'm not either looking at them. I think that the, the real thing that came home to me in the British Museum was... The ex what kind of what kind of excitement or interest did people get out of it? And one's got to reckon that there isn't anybody who is an expert, any visitor, there's no visitor or anyone at all who's an expert in all the different cultures that you can see. Um, and, you know, I know a bit about the Greeks and the Romans, but there's other stuff I don't know about. And I was in a Greek gallery. What I thought was really interesting was that I would sometimes, you know, a bit pushily, go up to people and say, oh, you know, can I help you? Can I help you? And almost always they said no. And what I was fascinated by was what the real kind of basic equipment they were using. Almost everybody was a map, a plan. <laughs> and they actually, when I went up and said, oh, can I help you find me? Um, they would say, um, no, I've got my map. And I thought, look, people are coming into this museum, and it would be different in other museums, but the British Museum is a very particular type of museum, and they are treating it as a voyage of discovery. It is a navigation. It is, you know, 
getting the plan out, the fun of, of, of kind of orientating yourself and saying, now, how do we get to um, the African collections from here? And whereas I thought to start with that I was going to be be very helpful to people and and you know, cut corners a bit for them by saying, oh, you just go down there to the right and turn left. Um, they wanted to do it themselves. And I suddenly saw that that idea of going into this world of completely different cultures and you've got your route map and you're going to go from one place to the other and you're going to follow it was a sort of excitement to visiting the museum that I hadn't realised before. Of course, it's that excitement that, that caught your imagination, I believe. I believe it was a piece of ancient cake <laughs> that um, first drew you. And what can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, I, I owe my whole career, really, to a visit to the British Museum when I was five. Uh, I lived in Shropshire and um, my mum was very keen that I should see the capital city, not just rural Shropshire. And so we went and stayed in London and she was a school teacher. And um, so there were some, you know, cultural things to be done. Um, the British Museum was one of them. And I remember two things particularly. One was going to see the Elgin marbles, um, controversial as they now might be. And I remember being stunned by them, um, partly because, you know, aged five in some very rudimentary way, I'd sort of got the impression that that the modern world must be better at doing things than the past and that somehow kind of history was some kind of whiggish progress. I wouldn't obviously have said that aged five um, towards you know, greater and greater expertise. Here was something with my mum said it was 2,005 years, 100 years ago, and I got, you know, that was almost too long for me to contemplate. And they were so good. They were doing it, they were doing it sort of better than we can. And that was a kind of moment of revelation that, that you know, took me... Well, I'm still working on it, I think. But then, uh, after that, we went to see the Egyptians. Everybody wants to see the... Every kid wants to see the Egyptians. Uh, we did look at the mummies, but the, we then went to see the everyday life in ancient Egypt. And um, my mum said, right at the back of one of these cases, there was a piece of carbonised 4,000-year-old Egyptian cake. And... Back in those days, it was 1960, you know, the British Museum wasn't exactly child-friendly. The cases were very high. And this piece of cake was at the back and I couldn't see. So my mum, remember, had to put her bags down and kind of lift me up so I could peer into the case. And at that moment, a guy came by and I'd got no idea who it was. Um, but he's obviously a member of staff because he had a key and he saw this rather awkward scene, you know, the you know, mum with her bags and the kid and it all being a bit squirmy. He came over, he unlocked the case. He said, what did I want to see? And we said it was the cake. He got the cake out and uh, showed it to me out of the case. You know, it was magical. It was really, really magical. And it was a sort of... It was more than just being exciting. It was more than, although it was, you know, being face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with Bill Cake. <laughs> Who could not be excited by that? But it was somehow the idea, the message that guy got across was that somehow people would enable you to see the past. You know, the past was not just inside the case. People would help you understand it. People would open the cases for you. So that was, you know, it was a lesson about the, the way people were prepared to help you explore history that was so important. 
Uh, I mean, that's obviously what kicks out at a passion that's plain for, for anyone to see. And, and I think ev- evidently that passion is for everyone to see now in the form of your blog and your Twitter exchanges. And I'm interested uh, to know how you think that that online medium of being able to talk with anyone and everyone on Twitter and reach so many more people with your blog for the Times Literary Supplement, um, how that has changed uh, historical debate or discourse for you? Oh, immeasurably. Um, um, perhaps it sounds like rather selfish ways, but I think that in the past, well, when I started my career, you might write something even in a you know a newspaper or a periodical or go on the radio, and you didn't know what people thought about it. You might see what some reviewer thought about it, but you wouldn't see what the ordinary listeners or readers thought about it unless they chose to write you a letter you know put a, you know and a, a, two weeks later you'd get this now you have an instant engagement with the people that that you you want to talk to and you know i think for me there's nothing more exciting it's very time consuming and you can sometimes get in a bit of scrapes with it but there's nothing more exciting than um a live tweeting through a television programme you've made. You know, because people do say, um, partly ask kind of very simple questions like, oh, I, I missed where that was, where is it? And you can just tweet back. Sometimes they've got really, really interesting observations or disagreements sometimes um, that you can start to get into a conversation about. So it it it, it can be time-consuming, but it really does change your interaction with um, with the readership. It makes it, you know, in that sense, I think it does make it more democratic. Now, I think one can overestimate the democracy involved here, you know, and, um, uh, you know, after all, um, you know, sometimes I still think, <laughs> look, I'm a professor of ancient history around here. Sometimes I, I never say that, but I sometimes think it. <laughs> um, but it's it's just a wholly different world of engagement, which I don't see how one couldn't possibly like. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
something that was really, really fun on Twitter recently was um, your curation of the Radio 6 playlist with Tom, Tom Robinson's show for Six Music. Um, and I'm kind of really interested to, uh, well, if you can tell us about that and, and how does it, what does it tell us about how people are uh, relating to, to classics right now? Well, it was, um, I don't, I don't listen to too much popular music on the radio. I listen to I do listen to Radio Six, but um, but I've been a long-standing admirer, you know, since my uh, early twenties of Tom Robinson and a Tom Robinson band. So, um, and we've been following each other on Twitter. So when I, I got a tweet from Tom saying he got an idea, could he share an idea? And it was about curating um, a themed show of popular requests for um, popular music with some kind of classical element to it. I mean, ancient element, you know, Greek, Roman, Egyptians or whatever. And I thought that was just too good an opportunity to miss. I didn't have to do very much. I had to think about it a bit. But... Uh, and to talk to him about the songs that that were memorable for me as um, classically inspired. I particularly like the Ronettes. You came, you saw, you conquered. <laughs> um, not a number that you hear often played these days. Um, but he also wanted me to kind of tweet through the programme about, because people would make suggestions and they would get a playlist together um, and I would kind of say, oh, yes, did, did you actually know? Do you know who Jason and the Argonauts are? Isn't that really interesting? And so I kind of did a bit of a stream of consciousness tweeting through this programme where Tom was playing all, a whole range of music, um, you know, from Tom Lehrer's Oedipus Rex <laughs> to, in the end, Prokel and White a Shade of Pales, The Bangles Walk Like an Egyptian. Um, uh, and, you know, I was, you know, providing the, the sort of light entertainment on the side. And what was amazing about it was two things. I mean, one was I kind of thought it would be a good idea. Um, I think we all thought it would be a good idea and that there'd be enough people who would be kind of nerdish enough <laughs> to tweet what they'd like to hear. It, we had enormous numbers of suggestions you know, it seemed like the whole Twitter sphere was kind of saying, "Oh, you know, you know, what about Nick Cave? You know, what about Cream? You know." And, and so there was. It was a really, really successful thing, and I thought it was very nice too because, uh, on the one hand, it demystified classics a bit. I mean, I think that you know, for all that everybody does, there there is a kind of occasionally an element about classics. Serious, you know, you have to know a lot to really get a lot out of it. You know, um, you know, actually, sixteen Vestal Virgins leaving for the coast is something which is in my own popular imagination, and it's not, you know, it's not all that hard. So it kind of took a bit of that sort of austere sting out of it. But also, my colleagues got involved too. So you know, these old classics professors, you know, sitting in Cambridge, you know, working on their Plato, they too were saying, you know. Oh, you've got to have the Smiths. <laughs> so I thought it was very um, uniting, funny, um, good fun, what's not to like. And I was very pleased that in one of the numbers, I can't remember who it is now, um, 
there was something about the shrine of Valares in Pompeii. And um, I was able, Twitter's wonderful, I had to get a picture of a shrine of the household gods, the Lares, and say, look, just been listening to the shrine of the Lares, here is one. <laughs> well, that, that's the key thing, I guess, is um, the accessibility of it that, that you bring and that your TV shows have brought in the past. And I'm very interested to know, for, for listeners who might never have the chance to be an undergraduate at Cambridge and be able to sit in a lecture, um, if they turn on their TV and they're watching Pompeii or Meet the Romans, how different are the arguments that you're presenting and how much do you have to pitch it differently? I find that people often say to me, um, oh, it must be really, really different um, doing television from teaching Cambridge undergraduates, you know. And actually, you know, it isn't. You know, if you try talking to a room of 100 first-year Cambridge undergraduates, okay, they're, they're intelligent, but they don't know very much and they need to be interested. You know, gone are the days, thank heavens, you know, when you took the same old boring lecture notes and, uh, you know, just read them out to an audience that was sort of dutifully writing them down. You, I mean, what are you doing in a lecture now? is um, you're trying to get people to look at the ancient world in a new way, to think that it matters, to think that it's interesting, to think they want to go and follow it up for themselves. You know, you can't put everything in a lecture. And I think that's not very different from television. And um, the arguments that I want to put over are almost identical. Well, they are identical. I mean, I, I, I kind of rather despise uh, any view which says, oh, now, for, for the undergraduates at the University of Cambridge, we have the proper arguments. And when we go on telly, we tell any old story that will entertain. The arguments that I'm using are basically the same. Now, you, you know, you play down a bit of the, uh, the technical terminology on the telly um, because, you know, partly the technical terminology is what the undergraduates are going to need to to learn, and actually it's quite easy to enjoy the Romans without. But essentially, the arguments are the same. And I think that when they, when my students look at the telly, they recognise it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think that's, you know, that's nice, mm-hmm. actually. It's, and it's, um, and, and I think, I think it's, it's terribly important to treat the television audience is intelligent. They might not know everything. They might be ignorant. So my undergraduates were all ignorant about things. But they're not stupid. (laughs) And don't treat them as such. Mm -hmm. So this chat is around our 500th episode and you've been on our podcast a number of times before talking about the um, ancient Romans and talking about history in schools. Um, For you, why do you think that classics has such a big enduring appeal for, for each generation, each revision? Um, I think it certainly does. Um, And I think that people often say about their own time, oh, look, we're just rediscovering the classics. You know, look at your television programmes. You're part of a new wave of classics. Actually, we're always rediscovering the classics. You know, I was brought up on I, Claudius, on the telly, and that was rediscovering the classics. I think it's because they, they, they still certainly in this country, matter to us. I mean, there's still... uh, The Romans are still present, you know, in the world in which we live. They've, you know, it's for better and worse. You know, why is London where it was 
hopeless place, <laughs> it's because the Romans put it there. Um, so I think this, they're kind of undeniable. They're, still, they're actually in the soil. You know, you see them still. But also I think that they are, I don't think they're relevant and I don't ever really like it when people say, you know, oh, the Romans are so relevant. I mean, I sort of see what they mean, but actually the Romans are dead and gone and, you know, I couldn't really give a toss what Roman Emperor Donald Trump was most like. You know, I don't think it's, that's not what uh, what I'm into. I think that we're still having conversations that the Greeks and Romans kicked off and that we've learned to debate things that are important to us through listening to how they debated it. So it is kind of very difficult, I think, to have an intelligent conversation about democracy or liberty or the rights of the citizen without seeing sooner or later that we're actually involved in a conversation with the ancient conversations about that. Now, when I say that, I don't, for the life of me, mean that... Um, that Greco-Roman culture is the only ancestor of our culture. You know, thank heavens it isn't. You know, you know we're not in some. You know, we're not terribly simply beholden to them. But on the other hand, we um, we are still um, talking their talk in a way, and I think we don't really understand our own language if we don't kind of get some sense of that. I think they also help us, like, but this is true of all history, really. I think they help us see ourselves from the outside. You know, history is partly about realising how weird you're going to look in, in 2,000 years' time. It gives you a kind of external perspective on yourself. It turns you into the, the people who might be the object of somebody else's gaze. What would the Romans think of us? has to be a question, you know, that follows what do we think of the Romans. Um, and I think that, I think also people are, people are still, even in the most day-to-day -day ways, engaging with Roman culture and they're using Roman culture as a way of discussing their own values. And, you know, you meet people and they'll say, oh, I know nothing about the Romans. Oh, I don't know anything about that. Uh, it, it only takes you five minutes to show you them that they know loads about the Romans. It was like Gladiator. Oh, yes, well, right. Gladiators, the film Gladiator, you know, Asterix, you know, versus the Romans, um, Roman bathing. Um, and, you know, part of what you're doing is making people realise that they've already engaged with the Romans, that some of this isn't new to them. Some of it's quite familiar and we're going to look at it in a different way. Um, something you you, written, you wrote very recently on dark tourism. Um, I was interested to find out because you just mentioned the gladiator, and now these days they're they're very rarely seen in popular culture as a tragic figure oh. almost. Um, and when people might go to Pompeii and not treat it as a site of incredible devastation. Um, so what what would you say to people who are maybe going to those sites or reading about those histories this summer? How would you want that to be presented? I think it's. It's it's hard because you don't want to be complete downer. You don't want to say, <laughs> go to the Colosseum and just think of the number of people who were killed here. I mean, it is true, but it's you know, it's not great holiday message. I think that I think you just got to be kind of realistic about these things, and I think it's and not gloss over it. You know, I think in some ways, um, I think the Romans 
would be pleased that we were still looking at their culture. And I think that the people who died in Pompeii, and it was a you know, it was an appalling tragedy. I think one of the things that we can do for them is to say, okay, but we're still trying to understand who you were. You know, that's that's how sort of we can we can pay you back that way. Um, uh, but I think at the same time you have to just remember, you know, remember that when you walk past the plaster casts that were made in the cavities left by the dead bodies, that there's a there's a people, and. Uh, you know, and just look that, you know, look that realistically in the face. I don't think we should turn our back on it because it's, because it's all too upsetting. It's a very long, you know, it is a very long time ago, and you know, what I think, what what we owe those people is to try to understand uh, what kind of lives they had. And you know, I, I, you know, I like to think that if I was a victim of Pompeii, that you know. 2,000 years later, uh, you know, maybe my death could at least have helped people understand the kind of people that my civilization, the Romans, were. Mm-hmm. And I think also, and this is important too, that we have to be careful about being, being too confident of our own superiority. I and mean, I think I once spent a long time in the Colosseum just listening to what um, largely school parties were told. And it was interesting that every European language that I could understand, the teacher's patter was very much the same. They would say, what happened here? Um, and eventually, usually a little boy would say, you know, oh, you know, people came and killed each other for pleasure, right? And the teacher would then say, would we do that now? And they'd say, oh, no, we wouldn't. You know, and you wanted to say, hang on, you know, hang on. I know that... Boxing isn't a fight to the death, but what do you think happens to boxers in old age? And I think the same goes for slavery. And you, you can go round and um, explore the slave quarters in big Roman houses, you know, and the same teacher's patter. I'm sure it's been my patter, I'm not blaming the teachers, is to say, do we have slaves now? And no. And you say, hang on a minute. You know, there are people on this planet, living in the same conditions that we are now deploring. So, you know, I think that there's there's two sides to the morality. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really like to talk about women and power. Um, your One of your uh, very recent works that was published in November 2017 and um, taken from two lectures you gave. And it draws on the idea that it's ancient Greek and Roman tradition in public speaking that is silencing uh, modern women today. What can you tell us about that that idea and that link? I, I don't want to blame the Greeks and Romans directly and to say it's all your fault. Well, I don't think that. But I suppose it is it's another facet of the idea of how so many of the things and the ideas and the assumptions that we treat as natural about how the world should work, quite a lot of them go back to the ancient world. And I think we've, we've still got time to change that. <laughs> and I don't think we're trapped by the ancient world, but we've spent thousands of years reading and rereading that, that kind of ancient ideology, and some of it has determined the way that we think. So I, I was very struck when I um, reread Homer's Odyssey about, about 10 years ago, and I'd read it. <laughs> 
before, never really noticed this, but you know, it's the, perhaps the second work of literature to survive from the West. Um, and it's the story of the Greek hero, Odysseus, who's going to come home, trying to come home after the successful capture of Troy. Um, and he has terrible trouble getting home, partly because he keeps being seduced, ha-ha, by women. Um, and his long-suffering wife, Penelope, is at home waiting for him with their rather wet-behind-the-ears teenager. And so part of the story is Odysseus's, and this is the story we usually remember about the Odyssey, it's Odysseus's attempt to get home through women and monsters. Um, but the other part of the story is Penelope's wait for him, and the son, Telemachus, is growing up. He's becoming a man all over the period that his dad is away. And there's a lovely bit at the beginning of the poem when um, Penelope comes downstairs because she has an upper room and um, she finds the bard singing about what a terrible time people are having coming back from Troy. And she says quite reasonably, can't you think of something a bit more cheerful to sing? You know, this is a really miserable song. I'd like something a bit happier. And Telemachus, this weedy teenager, says, mother, shut up. Speech is man's business. Go upstairs. And she does. And I thought when I read that, I thought, why haven't I noticed that bit of the Odyssey before? You know, I'm always struggling so hard with the Greek that I didn't notice what it was saying. Um, and I thought, you know, look, there isn't, and I, I can now pretty well um, sort of confirm this by, you know, bits of uh, questioning around various public gatherings. There's not a... There's not a woman on the planet, I don't think. He doesn't in some way recognise that moment, whether, you know, not necessarily a son, but somebody just says, look, sorry, darling, men's talk. <laughs> um, and that got me thinking about how many of the ways we have about thinking of women's power and women's right to speak or women's right to be heard, women's right to be taken seriously. Um, how many of those are still, or at least were kick-started in the ancient world, and we've never managed to kick-stop, really. You, you were named in the Queen's 2018 Birthday Honours list earlier this year um, for your services to the study of classical civilization. Firstly, what did you think of that honour? And then secondly, what do you think it says about the perception of public historians in our country? Well, you know, I was very pleased. Um, I think it's quite important not to take it too seriously. And I don't think I'm going to go around the world being called Dame Mary, thank you very much. <laughs> Partly because it feels a bit like a pantomime character. Um, but I thought, in a sense, as you're suggesting, um, it it was very nice for me, but it was a vote of confidence in in the subject and in the use of the subject within within public discourse. And I think it's, you know, for me, it was really great that in 2018, you can still be made a dame because you're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, you know. Uh, so uh, that's very encouraging. Hmm. Uh, I think that uh, people lament a bit the the fate of public history, I think, a bit unreasonably. Um, and I think that, you know, BBC History magazine is, you know, a, a, one good example of, of showing how um, that rather gloomy view that somehow we don't take history seriously anymore is, you know, I think every generation thinks that. Um, uh, and it's, not, it's never true. 
you know, there's, you know, I don't don't seriously think there's ever a culture that's going to say, oh, I'm not going to be bothered about the past. Thanks very much. You know? um, but I think one does have to, one, one just has to to keep reasserting that it's valuable. And I think in in um, all kinds of different ways. Honestly, I think that you know that's partly by it's by writing, it's about talking, it's about tweeting, it's about blogging, it's about making television programmes uh, and a very, you know, very different kinds. And, you know, I think that does go from what can you learn, you know, as we did on the front row, um, what can you learn from dressing up as uh, a gallery attendant and seeing what happens, how does your view of people's engagement with history change to something which is, you know, much more you know, ostensibly and really serious, like civilizations or the, the Roman programs. Um, so, you know, I'm 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 optimistic, honestly. Um, but I think the damehood um, was a nice validation of that. I'd just like to say that um, I suppose that one of the things I'm trying to do a bit, you know, insofar as I got my time left, <laughs> age sixty-three, trying to do a bit of different sorts of Engagement. I mean, I think that why television is interesting, as well as all the things about um, uh, a contact with uh, with a different audience, um, uh, that goes without saying. But it's also interesting because it really is interesting doing it. You know, actually, you know, ten years ago, I didn't know how a documentary was made. It's absolutely fascinating, and people have um, I mean, the people that you work with. And I'm sure there are, there are people not like this in telly, but the people that I work with, you know, are intelligent. They're interesting. They have great ideas about what we might do. And I've learned huge amounts. And I think that people tend to treat television programs as, you know, the presenters' program. And actually, it's never the presenters' program. It's always, you know, a team a team effort. And ideas come from the team as much as they come from me. And so that's been fun. And we're trying to extend that, but it's also been fun uh, taking on a, you know, doing front row late on the television into which I've tried to inject a little bit of history and that will go on because that's something different all over again. You know, doing live television is really scary but absolutely fascinating. How can you, how can you talk, you know, without a retake? And um, we did the first series... Um, yeah, a couple of months ago, and we got better at it. I got well, I got better at it um, over the, the think, seven programs, um, and we're now being trusted with I think eight or even actually twelve more um, to try and actually really get some of that engagement that you feel on social media to try and get a bit of that back into television. And it is, you know, it is kind of. Scary, and I'm also trying secretly, but this is a secret between me and anybody who's listening to this podcast to introduce little bits more history into front row late. <laughs> you know, culture did not start last month, <laughs> and so wherever possible, we are taking a little backward glance at where we got all this from. <laughs> that was Mary Beard, Women in Power, a manifesto is out now in the UK, published by Profile. And in the US, it's available from LiveRight. And that's about all for today. 
but please do take the opportunity to browse through our podcast archive on historyextra.com, some of which is only available to BBC History magazine subscribers as part of our online library. And meanwhile, we'll be back tomorrow with another of our podcast stars from the past. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 